You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. I'm Jessica Diavanza, Community Engagement Librarian at Barrington Public Library in Barrington, Rhode Island. Welcome to a conversation with Kara Provost, a professor of writing who has lived in Barrington for 15 years and teaches in the writing program at Curry College, a small liberal arts school in southeastern Massachusetts. She'd been active in the writing scene there and was curious as to what kind of writing community she would find in her new town and state. That summer, she noticed the public library was having a poetry reading of work by students in a poetry class taught by one of the librarians. She figured it was worth checking out to meet other writers, and by the time it was over, Lori the librarian had recruited her to teach. She shares that memory with us. Oh, you should teach with me next summer. (laughs) This workshop, I've been doing it on my own for a long time, but I'm not really... um, a a professional poet or anything. And so we kept in touch. And the following summer, 2006, I co-taught the writing workshop, poetry workshop with Laurie at the library. And then over the next years, many years now, um, I've taught at least... 12 workshops. She began teaching poetry writing workshops at the library in summers when she was on break from teaching at the college. When I began working at the library and met Kara in 2013, she had quite the poetry following and continues to attract adult writers from Barrington and beyond. I asked her to share more about what it was like to move to Rhode Island as a writer and find her niche. So when I first moved here, I was I was a little worried actually because the Boston area has a very rich writing community, and um, you know there's the Grolier Poetry Bookshop in Cambridge, and there's Harvard, and there's um, schools with MFA programs in the area, and there's just a lot of writers in the Boston area. And uh, I didn't know what it would be like in Rhode Island. And what I actually found was it's a generally a very welcoming community here. And that because it's a little, it's a small state and the community is smaller, it's a lot more accessible. Um, so, you know, early on, I found out about the Ocean State Writers Conference at URI. And I met Peter Covino, who teaches writing um, and creative writing at um, University of Rhode Island. And he was very welcoming and he invited me to participate in a panel. And I was a panel moderator for um, Jericho Brown, who is a wonderful contemporary African-American poet, just was breaking on the scene at that time. Um, Tina Chang, who's a fantastic writer, who has also become um, really much more well-known, and um, Vivian Shipley, who uh, lives in Connecticut. So I got to moderate this panel for them. Um, so I found it was really welcoming, and um, and the people at the library that I've met through doing the workshops, there are, there are a lot of people interested in and passionate about writing and poetry, and it's just much more accessible uh, and, you know, there, there are some nice things about being 
uh, a medium-sized fish in a small pond, <laughs> as opposed to a tiny minnow in the great ocean of the Boston writing scene. In the poetry writing workshops that Kara teaches at the library, she will share with her students the many forms and structures you can use to write poetry. During our conversation, I was struck by how many different shapes and sizes poems can be written in and how many of these variations I was unfamiliar with. There are so many different forms of poetry. And, um, you know, I think, again, a lot of people's first exposure to poetry might be through school and they may think that they're... poetic forms aren't being invented anymore. It's kind of like there's this received book of knowledge. Oh, you could write a limerick, you could write a sonnet, you could write a haiku. But, um, you know, there new forms are being born um, now. Um, there's a form called the skinny poetry, poem, skinny poem. Um, this was invented by a um, African-American contemporary poet named Truth Thomas, and he edits the Skinny Poetry Journal, which is an online journal. And he invented this format that's, um, it's called a skinny poem because most of the lines are only one word long. And um, it's really interesting and challenging and it involves repetition. And you have to be so um, concise and so pithy to manage to say something in an 11 line poem that has three lines that are repeated that are only one word long. And um, it's a really interesting challenge. So I've written some of those and, um, and uh, he published them in, online in his journal and then he did an anthology and a couple of my poems were in that. Um, but a lot of contemporary American poets um, choose to write in free verse. So they're not rhyming or counting um, you know, a metrical pattern, like it's not an iambic pentameter or something like that. Um, But um, there are also many contemporary writers who are experimenting with form um, and who might write, you know, one poem might come to you, like most of my poems are in free verse, but sometimes I feel like, oh, this really should be a haiku or a series of linked haiku, like the um, socially distanced haiku that I did that are linked. It's like one poem that's made up of several stanzas of haiku. Um, Or I'll think this really should be a poem that um, it needs a tighter structure. I'm going to do a syllabic count. So um, I have a friend, the writer Paul Hostovsky is a wonderful poet. He does a lot of poems that are um, he'll give himself a structure based on syllable counts. So each line has to be ten, a 10 syllables long. I'm going to write a 10 line poem and each line is going to be 10 syllables long. Um, you know, there are po- poetry forms like villanelles and um, pantoums and sestinas that use repetition, patterns of repetition, kind of like the skinny poem. Um, and what all those things do, I think, is again, it, it gives you a framework for, especially if you're writing about something that is very intense, or if you're writing about something like, you know, if you're writing about um, racism and violence against Black people in America and the way that it keeps happening over and over, and each time you think, this is the last killing of a Black person by a white police officer that I'm going to have to hear about, and then it happens again. Um, you know, sometimes having one of these forms that uses repetition in a very structured way allows you to get at the like 
obsessiveness or the um, feelings of futility um, and and um, the difficulty of having something like that repeated over and over and over, and you can build it into the form of the poem. So the poem structure is kind of should be enmeshed with the content and the feeling that you are writing about. When the coronavirus pandemic began, the library closed and we quickly shifted our public programming online. I was trying to think up programs that would bring comfort and joy to people at home. Kara's poetry writing workshop came to my mind after I heard about NPR asking listeners to submit socially distant haiku. I thought this was a great idea, both providing the joy of writing and the comfort of processing what was going on in those early weeks of the pandemic in the U.S. Kara, would you read the linked haiku that you wrote for the class? Sure, I would love to. It's called Corona Spring Series, and it is four individual haiku, what I call linked haiku. So since haiku are very short poems that are only three lines long, if you have more to say about a topic, sometimes you can use the haiku form and um, have stanzas that are each composed of a single three-line haiku. So this is a poem called Corona Spring Series, and it is four stanzas. Uh, and each stanza is it's an individual three-line haiku. Corona Spring Series. Worry lines behind masks, voice muffled by bandanas. No one has answers. Empty streets, empty dog parks, barren shelves and arms, and rain, so much rain. Now we touch slick screens instead of beloved faces. It is not the same. Fighting despair, we bring home a puppy so alive she vibrates with joy. I asked Kara how we might find that poetry and writing can help us during difficult times. For many, many people, um, they come to poetry especially if they start writing when they're, a lot of them start writing when they're teenagers <laughs> and they come to poetry because they find that it is a place to process and work with and put intense emotions. And there's that, because emotion, intense emotion can feel very chaotic and very overwhelming and hard to control or impossible to control. And then I think all arts, um, whether it's poetry or music or visual arts, you know, art is a process of take of making something and giving something form. So you take this inchoate, chaotic thing, whether it be an emotion or a vision or a feeling or something, and you give it a structure. In poetry, you give it a structure through language. And whether that's you're choosing to write a very structured poem format, like a sonnet, where you're looking at meter and rhyme scheme and a certain number of lines, um, or you're writing free verse, which is much less structured, but you're still doing things like you're paying attention to where does the line break and you're trying to create images and you're giving it um, an organization. It, it has a beginning and an end. And I think that that um, 
giving it a, a kind of framework and a structure and literally taking something that is internal and putting it outside of yourself and creating a concrete object outside of yourself um, is very therapeutic and it, and it gives you a sense of um, kind of control over something that uh, you may be struggling with. Aside from that, there is an aspect of play. And I do talk about that a lot with my students, both at the college and in the um, workshops at the library, is that poetry doesn't always have to be this like big, heavy, intense, serious thing. And even when you're writing about a serious subject, you can also be approaching it with the spirit of experimentation and play. I mean, creativity is a kind of play and playfulness. And it's also, to me, a kind of meditation or a way of being in the now and getting in that zone. Um, I speak of when I'm writing, it's almost like a, a trance or a dream. And like when I revise, I want to try to get back into that mind space, that different kind of um, way of being in the world um, where you're just really focused and you're in that flow experience, which um, other psychologists and things have written about with athletes or with artists. And that flow relieves you from the stress and the pressure and the anxieties of other things and gets you really focused on this task that's in front of you, writing this poem or revising this poem. Um, and it also can be very playful. You're playing around with language and all the different um, nuances that a word can mean and the sounds of the language. Um, and that can be really uh, fun and also really satisfying when you sit back and look at a poem you're like yeah you know I kind of nailed that or um, I'm really excited about sharing this poem with someone and then that's the third part that I think is really therapeutic about writing um, is that writing even if you you might just choose to write for yourself but there's also that idea of community um, my poem is going into dialogue with all these other poems that have been written. So if I write a poem about death, I can think about Emily Dickinson's poem about death. And I can think I'm, um, my poem is kind of in dialogue with that. And then you can move beyond that sort of um, abstract sense of community and dialogue to workshopping your poems. And that's something, you know, with even with our virtual um, workshop, we read our poems together and we talked about the poetry together. Um, and in my classes, the students give each other feedback in small groups. And that's a huge part of the class and a really rewarding part of the class for most of the students. Even if they start out being a little nervous about sharing their work, they really support each other. Um, and then there's that broader community of like, am I going to go give a reading and watching? I love to give readings myself because I love to see how the poem is landing with an audience. And are people laughing in certain parts? Are people showing that they're moved on their faces? And then can you publish the poem? Is it going to go out into the world beyond you? Um, and maybe other people will stumble across this poem online or in a journal or in a book. And, um, be moved or excited or, um, you know, touched by that poem. Most of your students at the library are quite a bit older than the college students you teach at Curry. Do you find that life experience impacts the poetry your students write and in what way? So I've worked with kids all the way from kindergarten who literally cannot physically write yet, <laughs> um, all the way up to, you know, adults and elders. 
um, and all ages in between. And they, they all bring different things to writing. Um, the young kids that I've worked with are often really creative. They don't have preconceived ideas about who can write poetry or who can't or what can poetry be about. And they're more open to experimenting with language because they're not set in their ways and in their relationship to, to language yet. Um, the college students I work with, it's, it was very interesting teaching writing poetry this semester because I was teaching it this spring and when coronavirus broke out and we had to shift everything to teaching online. And um, I try to give writing prompts both to my college students and to the adults that I work with in the library workshops. I try to give prompts that are quite open where there's some sort of structure or some sort of guidance, but I'm not telling you write a poem about a tree, you know? <laughs> um, and I found that a lot of the students, although I wasn't explicitly saying you, sh you know, you should write a poem about coronavirus, they were writing about their experiences with being uprooted from college and their friends and this independent or semi-independent living situation they were in at college to many of them moving home unexpectedly mid-semester, being isolated, being quarantined, cut off from their peers and their social group. And that's a huge thing for 18 to 22-year-olds. And um, so they were processing these things through poetry. And for them, a lot of it focused on this idea of um, isolation and quarantine and and fear, fear about their, their future. What kind of world are they, you know, launching out into um, versus the, the um, adult students uh, who I was working with this spring in the haiku workshop, online haiku, socially distanced haiku workshop uh, through the library. You know, also we were very explicitly focused on um, coronavirus and response to coronavirus. I think there was less, um, I guess less immediately personal responses to it as looking more at how is this affecting um, our community? How is this affecting um, ways of life and fears about mortality and things like that? And less focus on the whole issue of quarantine and isolation, even though that certainly came up. Um, but it's like they're people are focusing on what's developmentally appropriate um, and developmentally pressing um, for their age group. Uh, the other thing is a lot of the students I work with at Curry, they haven't necessarily read a lot of poetry. Um, they're really interested in slam poetry, spoken word poetry, a lot of them. And I tried to, them to go to readings and hear writing uh, aloud. And they don't necessarily, you know, they haven't necessarily read a lot of poetry on their own or gone to poetry readings or things like that versus the adult students that I work with at the library tend to be people who are, are passionate about writing and who are following poetry on their own and have read more writers and things like that and not just assigned poets in school, which is a lot of times the experience that um, the young writers, the college student writers are bringing. The subject matter, you know, I think like many young writers, when I was um, college age, uh, you know, a lot of my poetry was autobiographical. And I was mm -hmm. processing things that happened to me or um, uh, things that touched on my identity and my experience. 
And, you know, that's similar uh, to what I see in the college students writing a lot of stuff about relationships, um, boyfriends, girlfriends, or friendships, um, you know, family, things like that, that are somewhat autobiographical. And then as we get older, a lot of times our vision shifts to look at a larger slice of the world and um, also experimenting with other, trying to understand people who are different from you or different perspectives. You revised your socially distant linked haiku from the one you shared with the virtual class back in May. Can you describe your revision process? Is it different with poetry than with other forms of writing? Yeah. Um, so for revising poetry, um, for me, part of it is, I, I think that the more you read poetry, other people's poetry, and the more you keep writing poetry, the better you get at revising. Um, you have just a a better sense for what is working and what isn't and how to change it to make it work better. So when I was younger, um, sometimes a lot of many years would go by before I felt the poem was actually finished. And now I feel like I have to do less waiting and less revising. Um, but I think it's, you always, it's always good to put a poem aside for a little bit and, and to not be wedded to the first version um, sometimes a mistake that I see in young writers is they feel like, oh, if I revise this, uh, I'm going to make it less authentic somehow, you know, like this, but this was the way it really happened. Well, it's poetry. That's, that's where the term poetic license comes from, right? Is that you don't have to make it strictly, uh, by the facts or by your life experience. You can play around with it. Um, so putting the poem aside for a little bit so that you can get a little bit of objectivity and a little bit of distance from it is really, really helpful. Um, and for me, I do a lot of reading and rereading of the poem aloud. I like to work when nobody is home um, and I don't feel distracted by other people's presence. And I read it aloud so I can hear what's happening in the rhythms of the poem. And that can help me make decisions about where to break li lines or like, oh, this line sounds too long or this wording sounds awkward. This rhythm gets clunky here. Um, so that's an important part of the revision process for me. Um, and then I am a part of two different writers groups. I have two friends, um, uh, who are great poets themselves. Um, I mean, McCluskey and Deb Mead, and we have been in a writer's group together for like 15 or 18 years <laughs> and they both live in Massachusetts. I met them when I was living there and we've kept it up across state lines. Um, and we meet monthly and then I also have a creative faculty creative writing group that I started when I came to Curry College. Um, and that's really interesting is it's faculty from different departments. They're not all just writing faculty and we write in all different genres. So I have people who are working on fiction, people who are working on poetry, people who are um, working on um, kind of um, autobiographical and academic writing that are blended. And... Um, and we meet every two weeks. And so we read each other's work and then getting the perspective of a reader. So even if it's, you know, a friend who doesn't normally read a ton of poetry, that's okay because what we, I don't want to write poetry that is only understandable and only means something to other poets. <laughs> I'm not that kind of poet. I want people to be able to read my work and no matter what their experience is, find something that speaks to them. And, um, so if you 
have someone else read your work, then have them respond as a reader. What, what sticks out to them? What's gonna, what are they remembering when they leave that poem? Is there a particular image or a particular line or the sounds of um, certain words that stay with them? Um, are there places where they get confused or they get lost or where they feel like, you know, you went a little too hard on that. You hammered it over, you know, okay, yeah, I got that. You didn't need to add that other three lines that sort of hammered it home. So the groups are really, really important. Getting feedback for me is really important. Um, with those haiku, I did bring it to my friends, Deb and Dileen and got some feedback from them. And, um, you know, they saw some things like, oh, this stanza and that stanza are kind of a little repetitive. They have certain similar ideas in them. So I took those, I took the best lines from those two different ones and combined them into one stanza, one haiku stanza. Um, things like that, that, you know, you're not necessarily, it's harder for you to see in your own work. While taking some time to plan before our talk today, I started to think about my favorite poems At first, I remembered poems from American Lit class in college, and then some childhood favorites. And as I googled these poems, I got excited rereading them. I kind of got lost in them. And then finally, I remembered a favorite poem that I read at one of our library poetry readings for National Poetry Month. It was Linguini by Diane Lockward. I first heard it read by Garrison Keillor when he used to do the Writer's Almanac on NPR. What about you? What are some of your favorite poets and poems? So yeah, favorite poets and poems, you know, I could go on for a long time. So <laughs> I was like, I started to brainstorm a list. I was like, okay, I have to cut this off because it's really getting crazy. But um, a few poets that I turn to regularly are um, Joy Harjo, who just got elected to Poet Laureate of the United States. And she's the first Native American writer to hold that honor and I'm so excited. She's long been one of my favorites. Um, I'm particularly fond of her book um, In Mad Love and War. I love every poem in that book, Um, particularly um, Eagle Poem, which is the last poem in that book, is a very peaceful poem and it's kind of like a prayer. And I've um, copied that poem out and given it to people sometimes who have been in difficult situations or who have lost a loved one. Um, It's a really beautiful and powerful poem. Um, I also love the poem, I Give You Back from her book, She Had Some Horses, which is a poem about processing fear and, and resistance. And I think that's a poem that speaks to me right now in these times with um, the protests against, um, you know, police violence against black people and the history of racism in the United States. It's a very powerful poem. And again, it has a kind of chant-like quality to it. Um, Lee Youngly is also one of my favorite poets. And, um, the, the book I turn to a lot from him is Book of My Nights. Um, and there's a poem in there, um, called Words for Worry, which, um, it's a really tender poem, and there's this image of him um, folding up a little note, writing some po- po- some lines of poetry on a little note and sticking it in his son's lunch bag. And I was so moved by that. You don't see a lot of, I don't find a lot of poems by men writing about fathering and fatherhood, and there's a lot of women writers who write about mothering and motherhood. Um, So I was really touched and moved by that poem, Words for Worry. Um, 
Naomi Chiabnai, uh, another contemporary American poet, is one of my all-time favorites. Some of her poems are really funny. She has political poems. Her poems are often really clear and, and conversational. Like you feel like you're just like sitting down and having a cup of tea with Naomi. And she's um, wonderful. Um, and she has a poem that's kind of like a poem story called Gate A4 um, from her book, Honeybee, which is one of my all-time favorites. And um, it was written shortly after 9-11. And again, it, it's about kind of processing and dealing with um, racism and stereotyping and finding common humanity. And it's just such a beautiful and um, inspiring poem. Um, older poets that I really like, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, um, uh, Raina Maria Rilke, his archaic Forso of Apollo, that poem, like, it just, like, blew my head away when I read that poem. Um, James Wright is one of my all-time favorites, um, uh, particularly his poem, um, Lying in a Hammock and on William Duffy's Farm, um, and also Autumn Begins in Martin's Ferry, Ohio. Um, he's one of these, po he's like a real poet's poetry poet, you know, like his poems are very, um, there's a lot of sensory imagery, they're very visual, and they're often just like, get you in the gut, you know, <laughs> like, oh. Um, I like Kay Ryan, she's, um, also kind of funny sometimes and she's got this her poems on uh, look at first when you read them very straightforward and then you realize there's a lot going on with like wordplay or syllable counting or this kind of sly very dry humor um she was u.s poet laureate for a while um as well um phil levine bob hickok are also favorites um Dorian Locks is one of my favorites. And then there's some Rhode Island connected people that I'm really fond of, like um, Rick Benjamin, who was Rhode Island Poet Laureate for a while. Um, I, I know him, I love his work. Um, Tina Kane, who's Rhode Island Poet Laureate now. Um, check her out. Um, and there's some other American Indian poets who I'm really fond of, including Santi Frazier and... Um, Oh, there's so many that are so great. It's hard to even know where to start, but those are a few. <laughs> you are a published poet. Can you tell us a bit about your published work? Ness is um, a lot of poems about, the, the, it's, the whole collection is focused on um, parenting and pregnancy and um, mother-daughter relationships. And uh, I wrote that book when my kids were quite young. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be granted a sabbatical. I was teaching at Montserrat College of Art at the time in Beverly, um, north of Boston. And I had my first sabbatical ever. And that was very exciting, um, especially since I had two young kids and was balancing work and parenting and commuting and all this stuff. And so I had time to write. And a lot of the manuscripts for, for NAS got written um, during that sabbatical or the poems got revised that had been drafted. Um, and then the second book, um, Topless, that's a collaboration actually between these two writer friends um, that I mentioned before that I'm in a writer's group with and have been for years and years, um, Eileen McCluskey and Deborah Mead. And um, we, we were like, well, you know, we've been writing together for years and 
we've gone on some writing retreats. Like we'll take a weekend usually in the summer and we'll go away somewhere together, the three of us, and we'll bring like armloads of books that we want to share with each other. And we bring different exercises or prompts and we give them to each other. And we'll usually go off and write during the day. And then we um, get together at night and we read our, what we've drafted to each other. We talk about the poems. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did a collaborative chapbook, which none of us had ever seen before. Usually chapbooks are small, um, focused collections that either focus on a particular theme or a particular form. And as far as I knew, they were always written by just one author because they're short books. But we're like, let's do a collaborative chapbook. And so we just started pulling together poems that we thought resonated and echoed with other poems by the other people. And we kind of came up with some different themes. And we had this theme of kind of like relationships, very loose theme. Um, and that's how Topless came to be. And we sent it out um, to two publishers, sent it out to like four places. And I anticipated this would be like a years long process. It usually takes a while to get a poetry book published. And within a couple mo- months, we had a reply from Main Street Rag who ended up publishing it and they wanted a book. Um, and right after I got the acceptance from Main Street Rag, we got accepted elsewhere too. <laughs> so that was really cool. And it was really fun putting the book together and, and, and having someone else to talk about the order and the structure of it with, because I find that is really challenging with poetry books because it's not like writing a novel, which I'm working on now, the novel, um, where like it's obvious or more obvious. I wouldn't say it's obvious, but more obvious about if there's a beginning and a middle and an end and how you're going to want things to unfold and where scenes have to come. And with poems, you could shift it all around and it makes the book very different depending on where you put those. Kara has shared many poetry resources here and which we will share in the show notes. And since this is a podcast, and I anticipate as a listener, you may want to listen to more podcasts, Kara shares her suggestions with us. For people who want to get more poetry into their lives are... um, some poetry podcasts and um, poem a day um, email subscriptions you can sign up for. So like um, on poets.org, the Academy of American Poets, you can sign up for a poem a day. They'll email you a poem each day. Um, And Rattle, which is an online and public um, paper journal, they also will give you a poem a day. And those are really contemporary. And a lot of times are poems that are dealing with and processing contemporary issues and events. So that's really cool. Um, And Tina Kane, who is the Rhode Island Poet Laureate, has a um, a podcast called Poetry Dose, where she interviews and the poet usually reads something and they talk a little bit. Um, And Tracy K. Smith, who was recently the Poet Laureate of the United States, has a podcast called The Slowdown. And you can either do that as an email where they'll email, she'll email you the poem each day, or you can listen to the podcast. And those are also really cool ways to um, hear poetry and also sometimes get some insight into the writer's process or where that particular poem came from. If you could offer our listeners one last piece of poetry advice, what would that be? You know, if there's something that you read and you're like, I don't like this, Fine, go find something else. There's so many different styles and approaches out there, so much different subject matter, so many different kinds of people writing poetry. Um, you're, you know, explore and you'll find something that, that moves you and speaks to you. Thank you so much, Kara, for your time today and for sharing your love of poetry.
You're welcome. Have we moved you to write a poem or inspired you to reach for poems written in the many contemporary styles Kara described? We'll leave you with one final socially distant haiku of sorts, an American sentence haiku made famous by Allen Ginsberg. A variation on haiku is called the American Sentence, and it is 17 syllables, which is the same number of total syllables in a traditional haiku, which is a line of five syllables, the second line with seven syllables, and the third line with five syllables. But the American Sentence haiku is just one long line, one sentence, that has the same number of total syllables, 17 syllables. So it's just a little one-line poem. And I will read mine. Mask, gloves, hand sanitizer, Clorox wipes. Never mind. I'll just stay in. Thank you for listening. Today's podcast episode is a production of Barrington Public Library. Our theme music is Ghost Byzantine by Blue Dot Sessions. Roadie Radio is made possible by support from the Office of Library and Information Services and through a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. This episode is brought to you by our wonderful and supportive Friends of Barrington Public Library. Join the friends and support the programs you love. Learn more at friendsofthebarringtonlibrary.org. You're listening to Roadie Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. When you're listening to Roadie Radio, you know you're listening to something good.